All right, turn to Hebrews chapter 4. On to the study now. Hebrews 4. Now, in a couple of weeks, we're going to begin a series in Colossians, Lord willing. This week, I thought it'd be good for us to spend some time talking about suffering. Suffering. A message on suffering is always timely. It's always needed. If you're not in the middle of heavy suffering, you should be preparing for it. It's coming. We all need instruction about suffering and encouragement in our suffering. I am particularly forgetful in the midst of my suffering. It's so easy to become inwardly focused and to forget the truth of God, which should be poking in on my suffering and instructing my suffering, helping me think through this thing of what I'm going through and what God's doing in it. And it seems like as a church right now, we're in a season where there's some unusually serious suffering. Uh, I get several prayer requests, maybe as many as 50 prayer requests in a week as a pastor. It's pretty typical, I suppose, in a church our size. People email me prayer requests. I see prayer requests on a pastoral care update that we get as a staff and elders here at the church. Um, You tell me sometimes, will you please pray for this? And I'm glad to do that. Now, I hear enough prayer requests that I can't remember all of them. When I tell you I will pray for it, I will pray for it. But there are some that I don't even need to try to remember, right? There are some that I've heard enough about or I'm moved enough about them that that I don't need to remember. And so there are maybe 30, 40, or 50 or so prayer requests represented here in this group and in the first service where uh, I'm looking for updates. I'm thinking about them at various times. And, and of those 30 or 40 or 50, I'd say maybe there's a dozen that have asterisks next to them. They're, they're heavy. They're big. We let you know about one of them. If you get our church newsletter, we let you know about one of them, the Duns, uh, earlier this week. Um, but there are, are so many families and individuals who are going through some very heavy things. And I think Hebrews 4 has been encouraging me about your suffering, and I want to talk to you about it this morning. Starting in verse 14, the rest of the chapter reads like this. Since then we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I want us to see four things about Jesus in these few verses. The first we get from verse 15, it's that he knows. He knows. The key here is that phrase, he is not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. For some reason, it's put in a double negative, even in the original language. So if we put it in the positive, it says, Jesus sympathizes with our weaknesses. He knows our weaknesses. Every kind of weakness, including temptation. He is sympathetic. Not just sympathetic. The word originally in the Greek here behind our English word sympathize is a well-loaded term. It has an intensity about it that maybe our English word sympathy doesn't quite capture. The Greek word here means that he is touched with feeling. He's affected with it. He's emotionally moved by it, which sympathy includes all those things. John Owen, though, writes a massive commentary on Hebrews, and he translates this this important Greek word here as a commotion 
of affections. Jesus has a commotion of affections about our suffering. And there's a sense in which he shares in our suffering as we're going through it. He knows it because he suffered. So this is more than just sympathy. This is also empathy, right? He's empathetic because he's been there. He's gone through suffering. He was a human being. He knows temptation of every kind. And there's a sense in which as we go through our suffering, he's suffering too. He's sharing with it. He's hurting, you could say, as we're hurting. Now, a quick qualification. The Bible offers more comfort to us in our suffering than simply that Jesus knows about our suffering or that he cares about our suffering or that he's concerned about our suffering. The Bible tells us that he's in our suffering, right? He's behind it. He's ahead of it. He's using it. He's orchestrating it. He has purposes for it. He's not just knowing about our suffering. He's causing, in a sense, he's bringing to pass our suffering because he has good, saving purposes in it. It's always for his glory and his people's good, mysterious as that seems in the midst of our suffering. Our suffering is producing patience in us and comfort, comfort which better equips us to comfort others, according to 2 Corinthians 1. It gives us endurance and it gives us perseverance, according to Romans 5. It gives us an eye toward eternity. It helps us long even more for the consummation of his plan and the new heaven and the new earth where there's no more sickness and no more death and no more sin, no more suffering. The Bible definitely says more than just that he knows and just that he cares and just that he's concerned. But it certainly doesn't say less than that he cares. He knows and he's concerned. We'll see that even in the passage itself of Hebrews 4, it says more than just that he knows and he cares and he's concerned. But let's not underestimate the fact that he knows And he cares, he intimately knows, and he truly cares. And that does matter to us. It mattered to Job. Remember, that was his frustration with his friends. He called them miserable counselors. Fred Zaspel taught us about Job recently. We saw there that Job was frustrated because his friends didn't seem to understand. They didn't seem to really listen. They didn't seem to show compassion. We all long for someone who just hears us, someone we can pour our soul out to. And thank God, oftentimes that is a a friend. Oftentimes that is a spouse. Oftentimes that is someone in your community group. Thank God that does happen on a horizontal level. And praise God there's more to it than just that. There is a friend who's better than any friend. There's a brother that's better than any brother. There's a father who's better than any father. So what does Jesus know about our weaknesses? He knows physical weakness in general. He was one of us. He had tiredness and sickness and pain and hunger and thirst. He was a human being just like you. Jesus went through puberty. Ever thought about that? 
You know, when it says in Philippians 2 that he humbled himself and became a man, you have to realize that that means everything about being a man, a human being. He had to go through puberty. He had pimples. Those are rough years. And in general, he, he knows limitations. Human limitations. God, who knows no limitations took on limitations. How much of your frustration in this life is related to the fact that you're not infinite? You're finite. You're small. You have limitations. We get frustrated with time limitations, ability limitations. Jesus knew those limitations. In fact, he knew poverty. He knew homelessness. Jesus knew what it was like to be hungry. Jesus knows personal loss. In John chapter 11, it says that Lazarus was his friend. Jesus' friend. That's a unique category there. Jesus sometimes says, you know, you disciples are my friends. But it's unique when another writer says of Jesus, Lazarus was his friend. And when Lazarus died, it says Jesus wept. He wept over the death of a friend. He knows disappointment of all kinds. He knows frustration of all kinds. When he took on flesh, he experienced in his life many of the frustrations that you experience. He knows discipline. Hebrews says he learned obedience. Now we might think that because Jesus is righteous, he's God, he's perfect, and because, yes, it is true, He couldn't have sinned and remained being God. Yet, he learned obedience. We think that it might have been easy for Jesus to to be righteous because what else could he have been? But he was truly tempted. He learned obedience, which means that he knows about wrestling your emotions. He always won wrestling his emotions. But he knows what it's like to have to preach to yourself. He knows what it's like to wrestle with your will to obey. He knows temptation. It says in verse 15, he was tempted in every way like us. And if we'll take those words at face value, that means then he was tempted to steal. He was tempted to lie, tempted to covet. He was tempted to punch jerks, just like you might be tempted to do from time to time. He was tempted to talk back to mom and to lust and and to give up and to pout. He was tempted with pride. He never gave in, but he was truly tempted in every way. Temptation's frustrating. Temptation's hard. In fact, I think he knows the hardness of temptation better than we do. C.S. Lewis suggests this. He makes the great point that Jesus actually knows about temptation better than we do, not less than we do. He says, you find out the strength of the wind by walking against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. Because Jesus was the only man who never gave in to temptation, he is the only man who knows in full what temptation means. He knows temptation better than you do. 
And even though he never sinned, and even though he never condones our sin, I think that there's a sense in which he sympathizes with our weaknesses. And included in that are the weaknesses of temptations. And included in that are also the temptations in which we give into. The temptations where we fail. Jesus sympathizes with our spiritual failures. Again, this isn't all that the Bible has to say about the matter. Right? You also have Ephesians 5 where it says that we can grieve the Holy Spirit. You have countless places in Scripture that shows God being angry towards sin, mad at sin, disciplining his children. That's all true. But it's not all that the Bible says. Here it says that he's been tempted in every way and he's sympathetic with our weaknesses. Not weaknesses in general, but specifically also in that are the, tempta- the weaknesses of temptation. But it doesn't say only those temptations where we don't give in. It just says temptations. Included in that, I suppose, are those temptations where we do give in, where we do fail. There's a sense in which Jesus understands temptation and he's sympathetic with the weaknesses, even the weaknesses of our sin. He doesn't condone it. He doesn't dismiss it. But yet there's a sense in which he's sympathetic. I know it sounds like a contradiction. Both are true. That's like many, many things in Scripture. Both are true, even though they seem uh, tough and mysterious. On the one hand, we remember that our sin grieves the Holy Spirit, and so we flee it. And on the other hand, we should remember that Jesus understands temptation, and he's a sympathetic Savior. Jesus knows unanswered prayer. He knows that frustration. He knows that wrestling. He prayed in the garden, Father, if there be any other way, let this cup pass for me. Now we won't go into the detail, the theological minutiae of, of how this could happen, where Jesus makes a prayer request that isn't answered in an affirmative way. But nevertheless, it's true. Jesus asked if this cup could pass from him, and it wasn't answered affirmatively. Jesus knows unanswered prayer. Jesus knows rejection. Rejection by his people on a national and broad scope, such that only politicians in our day know, right? How do you get rejected by a nation? Well, you've got to be nationally known. Jesus is rejected by the people. He was maligned by the Jewish leaders. He was hated by the crowd. There even seems to be some rejection from within his own house. His own brothers don't come to believe in him until after his death. He was merely a pawn to the Romans, crucified to pacify the Jews. He was betrayed by Judas, one of the twelve, one of his own, one of his closest friends for 30 pieces of silver, The point is clear, he knows very much what it is to have enemies. He knows very much what it is to be betrayed. And he knows very much what it's like to have flighty friends. He knows the abandonment of friends who slept when he asked them to pray. He knows the abandonment of friends who deserted him when he was dying. Peter even denying him publicly and with harsh words while the Savior hung on the cross. Jesus knows fatherly abandonment. He said, 
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knows the feeling of divine abandonment. You might feel like you've been abandoned by God, like he doesn't hear, like he has turned a deaf ear to you. And that's in the Psalms, this this feeling that God isn't there, that he doesn't hear, that he doesn't know, or he doesn't care. Now, what we see as we piece it all together is it only seems like he doesn't know, like he doesn't care, like he isn't there, like he doesn't hear. But with Jesus, it was true. He had been forsaken by the Father because of the sin that he was bearing upon the cross. He really knows what it means to be forsaken, to be abandoned. Whether that's for you a a suffering or a weakness, on a human level, you have a Father that has abandoned you. Or a divine level, you feel like God isn't listening. Jesus can relate. He even knows guilt. He knows guilt. Of course, he knows guilt not because he was guilty, but bearing guilt, though innocent, bearing our guilt on the cross, he knows what it means to have the weight of guilt upon your soul. Praise God, I will never bear the weight of guilt that he bore. But I occasionally, as I wrestle with my own sin and feel guilty after I've sinned, I wrestle with a weight of guilt, right? And hopefully I cast it on Jesus. I confess sin. I repent. I turn to him and he restores the joy of my salvation. But I tell you, that's one of the tough things of the Christian life. The weight of my guilt. No one told me that before I got saved. That would be a big part of living out the Christian life. There'd be this weight of guilt that you're constantly trying to work over to the shoulders of God and take off your own. It glorifies the gospel to do that. You need to do that for your own soul. It's right, but it's a fight. I didn't know it'd be so hard. But Jesus knows it far better than I do. He knows the weight of guilt. He knows the weight of the guilt of humanity. And he knows it in full. He knows our guilt better than we do because he has bore our guilt. Oh, he knows physical pain. He knows serious physical pain. He was scourged. He was crucified. His body began to fail. He knows what it's like to gasp for breath. Maybe you're in a season of unusual, high, tense pain. Jesus knows pain. He knows it. And he knows death. He knows what it is to breathe that last breath. He knows our weakness because he's one of us. He suffered these things himself. And yet he also knows the weaknesses and seasons of suffering we go through because he is with it. He is in it with us. He's going through it with us in a sense. He, he stirred in his soul as we suffered, as we suffer small or great. In fact, he knows our suffering in great detail, in perfect detail. Sometimes you're in the midst of a season of suffering, and you think it's as bad as it gets, and then it gets worse. You thought, oh, I didn't know it was so bad. Something was going on behind the scenes the whole time. I didn't even know, and now it's worse. Well, he knew. 
Jesus knew. He knows the detail of suffering that we're going through far more than we do. He knows and cares like a true friend. He knows and cares like a true brother, like a true father. He knows and cares like a husband does. You know, you say something mean to my wife, and I don't know if I can beat you up, but I might try. Right? Your kid comes home from school in a bully, has socked him on the playground. You have to tell yourself that you're not allowed to go beat up third graders. Right? There's something in you that's stirred and riled up. There's a kind of sympathy and empathy and care for that person that only maybe a husband or a father can have or a mother or a wife can have. And yet, I'd say that there's a kind of sympathy here that God has for us that only God can have. He sympathizes with our weaknesses and suffering even when it's so small that no one else cares. I didn't realize being a parent would include so much of, uh, you know, just a list of boo-boos. Hearing a list of boo-boos, that's so much of of what I do as a dad is, is, you know, looking at bruises, counting bruises for them. You know, they, they say, Dad, look, I've got six bruises, and they show me their leg, and I push on each one to make sure it's a real bruise. No, I'm just kidding. I don't push on <laughs> Actually, I'm kidding. I do push on them a little bit. Just a little bit. It's one of the games we play, right? And, and I didn't realize so much of being a dad would just be listening to rightful complaint from kids, right? It's not bad. I didn't realize it, though. And some of it, I am tempted, at least for a little bit, to, to think to myself, Come on, come on. Do we really need a list right now? Come on, can't, can't you save it for the really bad boo-boos? You know, if you didn't ride your bike so fast and recklessly, you wouldn't have so many bruises on your shins. Part of me thinks that. Not God. Jesus sympathizes with our weaknesses and suffering even when it's so small, no one else cares. He sympathizes with our weaknesses and our suffering even when it's so big, no one else knows what to say. Maybe you have a friend going through something that's so awful, you find yourself just saying sayings. Oh, I really don't know what to say. That's a saying. Well, I'll pray for you. Boy, that's tough. You you don't know what to say. It's so big that you, you feel silly saying anything trite, and we end up saying a lot of things trite. But God sympathizes with our weaknesses and cares for our suffering even when it's so big that no one else humanly knows what to say or can do anything about it. He sympathizes with our weaknesses and suffering even when it's been so long that everyone else around us is tired about hearing it. He never gets tired. He never gives up. He never forgets about our suffering. He cares. Secondly, he saves. Verse 14, it says, We have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens. Now, that's a shorthand of giving us the gospel weekend. Right? If we could condense Hebrews down to a message, it would be this. 
we have a high priest who intercedes for us and is himself the sacrifice. He sacrificed himself for our sins. And he not only said it is finished on Friday and rose from the dead on Sunday, but he is now at the right hand of God, a successful high priest interceding for us. The work is done. So at the beginning of verse 16, it says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. He saves. He was tempted in every way, but he gave in to none of it. He was perfectly righteous. What an amazing Savior we have that he can both understand and even sympathize with all of our weaknesses and all of our temptation. He's one of us, and yet he's not just one of us. If he were just one of us, he could be sympathetic and not be a Savior. And if he's God and not one of us, then he can maybe be a Savior but not be sympathetic. We have a sympathetic and successful Savior. And now in him there is not just care and not just concern, not just protection and you know, provision and all those good things. There's salvation, eternity with him. And salvation is not only our eternal destiny, it's the centerpiece of our comfort today. The gospel is not just a look backward, either to 2,000 years, Jesus upon the cross, or backward even to the time that I first believed it, my conversion. And the gospel is not just a look forward. Someday I'm going to heaven, that's settled, at least I got that covered. The gospel is for now. The gospel comforts me. Because it's a reminder that if I can trust him with my eternal soul, I can trust him with tomorrow's circumstances. That if he's sovereign over salvation and Jesus coming and the resurrection and Jesus now on his throne, if he's sovereign like that, he's sovereign over tomorrow's circumstances and today's headaches. If I can trust him with my soul, then I can trust him with my body. I can trust him with my job. I can trust him with my kids. I can trust him for food. I can trust him in my relationships. If I can commit my soul to him, I can commit everything to him and say, your will be done. You're good. The cross proves you're good. The cross proves you're sovereign. The cross proves that you're wise. The cross proves that you have my best interests in mind. I commit it all to you. He saves. Thirdly, he welcomes. Because he saves, he welcomes. The beginning of verse 16 says it so beautifully, so powerfully. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. The throne. And that should conjure up images of his presence and the Old Testament theme of the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctum of the presence and glory of God. Hebrews was written to Christian Jews. So they're familiar with their Old Testament. They're familiar with what it says about the presence of God and the tabernacle and then later the permanent temple. It would have within it this inner sanctum for God's dwelling place. The only one that went in there was the high priest. He went in once a year. 
Now, what we see from rabbinical literature outside the Bible is that these great high priests would go into this inner chamber once a year to make sacrifices, and they would go in with a rope around their belt because if they should slip up, if they should mess up, and God killed them for it, they could be dragged out by the people without the people having to go in. There is something about the glory, the terrifying holiness of God in his presence in the Holy of Holies. That's, that's what a first century Jew thinks about when they hear throne or throne room. And here it says, we can come to his throne. Well, us? We're not high priests. The great high priest has made the way. That's why it's so beautiful that the, the, the veil was ripped in two in the temple when Jesus died upon the cross. There's access now. We can not only come, but we can come boldly. It's amazing. He's eager now to hear us. Now, it doesn't mean we go find this inner sanctum for his glory and go in. It's not a geographical place. It's a spiritual place. What it means is that every Christian now has intimate access to God's very throne room, spiritually speaking. It means he's eager for us to come to him. He's eager for us to go to him, and he's eager to hear us so we can come frequently and we can come without doubt. And we can come asking much. He welcomes. He knows he saves. He welcomes. And fourth, he helps. He helps. The second half of verse 16 says, We can go to his throne of grace, draw near with confidence, that we may receive mercy and find grace. To help in time of need. He is eager to hear. He is eager to help. Second Chronicles 16.9. A verse I have on a plaque in my study. Here at the church. It says the eyes of the Lord roam through the earth. Looking to strengthen the hearts of those who are fully his. He's looking for opportunities to show himself strong. In those who recognize their weakness. And ask him for help. He's eager to show himself strong for those who ask, which means he's glorified in this asking and answering process. You might wonder, why does God, who's sovereign, who knows the end from the beginning, who will do what's right, whether we ask it or not, call us to pray to him? And the answer is, he's glorified in the asking and answering process. He will bring his plan to completion, whether you're praying for it or not. He's not bound by you. Oh, I would love to do this if they would just ask. But there is something about him extra eager to do his plan when we're asking according to his plan. He's glorified in it. So ask and ask frequently. Ask boldly. He's eager to give help. What kind of help? Well, I think of a few different things. He's Eager to help like this. Romans 8 tells us the Spirit intercedes for us as Christians and prays in ways that we know not to pray. Romans 8, the Spirit cancels out certain prayers and submits better ones for us. So we say, Lord, take this away. And the Spirit says, uh, he doesn't really mean that. So um, here's what we should do. The Spirit prays better prayers than we know to pray. Thank God for that. According to James 1, God gives wisdom 
in the midst of trials to all who ask, and he gives it liberally, holding nothing back. We need wisdom in trials. God says he gives it, just ask. He gives peace beyond comprehension, according to Philippians 4. That's how he helps us. Philippians 4 says God will give peace that doesn't match the circumstances. According to the world, that's the way peace works, right? You have peace based on peaceful circumstances. And in God's economy, the way it works is he gives far more peace than the circumstances would warrant. As he reminds us of his word and the truth in it, We have to remember that he helps us in our weaknesses at times by limiting our sin, by limiting our complaining, by limiting our murmuring, by limiting our doubt. You say, believe me, I do plenty of complaining, murmuring, and doubting in the midst of my trials. Yeah, but you could do more. Praise God you don't. And that's not your goodness that means you don't do more. He limits you. He draws you and keeps you on a leash. Praise God for that. He brings conviction where that's needed. Praise God, he limits the suffering we go through. One good exercise in the midst of bad suffering is to realize how bad it could be. And it's not. And then to quickly draw the connection that that's because of God. He sovereignly constrains the circumstances so it's not worse than it could be. He's in that. It's a gift. That's how he helps I love that picture of him on his throne, but it's a throne of what? What is it? A throne of grace, verse 16. Throne means he's sovereign. And you might think, okay, he's majestic, he's holy. This is a big throne. It's a regal throne. It's, a, it's kind of like Wizard of the Oz. You know, you come, clo- you come slowly and lowly up to the front here. But it's a throne of grace. If it were just grace... Maybe he couldn't do anything but show sympathy. And if it were just a throne, he could do whatever he wants, but he wouldn't care to do much. It's a throne of grace. He's not just a friend who only sympathizes with us but can do nothing about it. He can do anything. He can do everything. And he'll always do it to the utmost toward his glory and our spiritual good. He can do everything about it. And he is doing just what he should about it. He is doing just what he should in your life right now. He does far better than we know for him to do. Our prayer requests are frequently, Lord, just take this away. We think that that's often the only answer to prayer in the midst of our suffering. Lord, just make it stop. And he frequently says, by not answering that prayer in the affirmative, I've got bigger purposes than this. I'm doing something you can't imagine. Trust me, I'm in it. Look to the cross. They thought it was horrible on Friday, and they got it on Sunday. Oh, that's a weekend of revolution, of Copernicum revolution. But it may take a lifetime or maybe more for you to understand what I'm doing. But trust me, I'm in it. I'm doing something. So let me wrap this up with quick, uh, a quick four C's takeaway. Keep confessing, number one. Keep confessing. Verse 14 says, Since we have a great high priest, let us hold fast our confession. Make this your priority. 
I will keep believing. I will keep trusting. Keep confessing the gospel. Keep confessing that he's good, that he's wise, that he's sovereign, that he's in it, that he's near. Keep, secondly, coming. Keep coming to him. Keep drawing near to him in his word. Keep renewing your mind in his truth. Keep praying to him, casting your burdens on him. Pray for help. Keep praying for help. Know that he's an eager savior, eager to hear and eager to help. So third, keep confident. Verse 16 says we should come with confidence. Not a fake kind of faux confidence, faked confidence, but a true confidence. Confidence that acknowledges our weakness as we approach him because he already knows the weakness anyway, but confidence because he's sympathetic with our weakness. He cares for us even in our weakness. So we cast our weaknesses on him and we trust him and we ask for his help. Keep confident. And fourth, it's not right here in the passage, but I think by implication, another C here is care for others. If verse 15 tells us that Jesus is a sympathetic friend, then one implication is, therefore, be a sympathetic friend. Be one who's eager to hear. Be one that listens. Be one that's quick to help. Be one that's moved within your heart. Pray for God's help to be moved. I mean, how do you weep with those who weep? It's not by faking crying, you know? I mean, you don't obey that verse by having a friend who's crying and then you just go, you're not really crying, you're just faking crying. That's not weeping with those who weep. You really have to weep to weep with those who weep. And that's hard. Only God can give us the gift of weeping with those who weep, of being so moved that we we, we feel it in our bones. we, We bear something of their burden as we listen or as we help. We're going to close with a song of, um, close with a song, It Is Well With My Soul, a song we, we know well. I want to give you just some background before I pray and we sing. Some historical background to the song that we sing frequently and maybe don't know the story of. It was written by a, a man named Spafford, last name Spafford. Well, let me give you something of the story of Spafford. Um, in the 1800s, there was the sudden death of Spafford's only son. Then a short time after that was the great Chicago fire of 1871, which wiped out the family's extensive real estate investments. And then D.L. Moody, a friend of his, and music associate Ira Sankey, they were leaving for Great Britain on an evangelistic campaign, and Spafford was going with them. He decided to take his family to Europe along with them. And in November 1873, Spafford was held back for business reasons in Chicago, sent his family on ahead, and halfway across the Atlantic, their ship was struck by another vessel, and it sank in 12 minutes. His four daughters died that day. Mrs. Spafford, his wife, was among the few who were miraculously saved. So his wife is in England now, and he has to get to England. He's in the States, and he has to travel across the Atlantic knowing that his children, his daughters, died in the middle of the Atlantic, and he knows roughly where it is. 
One historical record says, when the ship passed the approximate place where his precious daughters had drowned, Spafford received sustaining comfort from God that enabled him to write, when sorrows like sea billows roll, it is well with my soul. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, you have taught me to say, it is well with my soul. God, we pray for the kind of grace that you gave that man to sing, it is well, it is well with our soul. We sing that, say that in our hardest of times. Lord, we may not feel that it's well. It may not feel that it's right. But I pray you'd give us eyes of faith. We'd walk by faith and not by sight. And we trust you. We pray we would sense even now that you're in our suffering. You hear us in our suffering. You know about it before we know about it. You know about it better than we know about it. I pray for a sense of comfort around this place right now in specific trials that people are going through. To know that you know. To know that you care. To know that you hear. To know that you're eager for us to come and cast our burdens on you and bring our weaknesses before you, even our doubts before you. And you are eager to help. Lord, we pray we would leave this place today free in the gospel quick to rejoice in your truth and your ways, confident in your grace, your goodness to us. We pray your cross, Lord Jesus, would be the center and focus of all that we are and all that we hope for and for the comfort that we seek. Give us a cross-centered comfort, which will likely mean, Lord, suffering. Suffering for some small, for some much greater. We pray, Lord, your cross would be exalted in the midst of it all and your cross would be the means of our comfort. Lord, if we commit our souls to you, we can commit our lives. If we commit where we're going in all eternity, we can commit where we're going tomorrow. You're a sovereign, good, wise, and near comforting God. We thank you. We thank you in Jesus' strong and saving name. Amen.